Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky. Emily's name is Emily. And folks, a, a wave of calm passes over the disco. A wave of calm passes over the disco like one we have not felt in so very long. It's It's been a long time coming, but uh, Panic at the Disco is no more. Finally, its shambling corpse has been taken behind the shed and shot like it should have been, like, five years ago. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. It'll come back in some form, but it'll be interesting to see what form that is. Because I think think Brendan's got a kid. When he comes back, he's probably going to be like, it's just Brendan now. But obviously, Mm -hmm. you know... 10, 20 years from now, they're doing reunion tours or whatever. There's a question of, like, would it be certain people getting back together? Would it just be Brendan? Uh, It remains to be seen. My personal petition is that I want everyone who is ever in the band except for Brendan to rejoin Panic! at the Disco. Nice. I'm try- <laughs> I feel like that has sort of happened with a band before, but I'm trying to remember who. The young- It happened with the Young Veins. It happened with whatever the other project was that wasn't the Young Veins uh, after those guys left, mm-hmm. uh, etc. We we are living in a world today where Panic! at the Disco is no more. And uh, it sort of gives us an opportunity to uh, reflect on their career. We're starting from the beginning, but we could very well uh, get through... <laughs> their, their catalog. Uh, and I guess we're just sort of asking the question, what was that all about? Honestly, what was that all of it? <laughs> there was so much going on in there at yeah. all times. Yeah, I mean, th- this is a, a wild album <laughs> in many ways, um, but it's also a wild story. And in both cases, it only gets wilder from here. I feel like we should we should specify what we're talking about real quick. We're talking about a fever you can't sweat out. And oh baby, can we not? We can't even. This record was, um, critics were kind of split on it when it came out. I mean, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's sort of, with time, I think, come to be seen as a classic of the genre. But, um, you know, at the time, obviously, there was sort of a, a mixed reaction to this genre from critics. But you'll see that, like, you know, Pitchfork gave it a 1.5 out of 10. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. And they're real for it. They're real they're real for that. They're kinda real for it. And on the other side you have like Rolling Stone giving it a positive review, Kerrang giving it a very positive review. And I don't think they're wrong for that either. Mm-hmm. We 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 touched on this episode in our on this album in our extended extensive episode on the uh on, you know, that whole era of of music, but Emo, um et cetera. Emo and so forth. Uh, what we basically touched on in that episode is that the album is kind of bad. (laughs) Bad. Like, 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 undeniable in a way, but kind of bad also. (laughs) I, I have in my notes. I, I have notes. Mm -hmm. My first note in here is, this album is like a sister to me. I understand what this means in my heart and my soul. But also it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's I, not good. you know, 
Yeah, I haven't given it like a like a thorough listen in I think a long, long time, and uh, in you know really going track by track this time. Uh, I, I I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, and sure. really, really only one song that I that I don't like on its own, but oh, it's oh really. It's quite all over the place as a as a record, yeah. <laughs> I think. I I want to know out the gate what that song is that you don't like. Uh, the song that I don't like. Let me just corroborate this. Yes, uh, the song that I don't like is. Just want to make sure I got this. Uh, yes, nails for breakfast, tax for snacks. No. <laughs> no. I did a good build up on that one. <laughs> can't do this to nails for breakfast <laughs> yes my first two notes are objectively not good autotune sucks but you can't yeah. do this <laughs> i i think the the production on that song is pretty bad it's really bad um, the <laughs> the lyrics are better than the songs that come before it on the album but like i think there are songs that come later on the album that are are much better written <laughs> that's fair that's fair this it's such a record. Mm-hmm. I was going through the um, the two set lists for the the times that I saw Panic, and apparently I've heard seven total songs from Fever live. Mm. Uh, Time to Dance, Only Difference, Sins Not Tragedies, Lying is the Most Fun, Kamizato, But It's Better If You Do, and fucking Intermission. Ah. They played Intermission as part of their set in 2014. Interesting. Like, on the Too Weird tour. Huh. So did they did they have someone like playing piano or did they just sort of play the song and, <laughs> and stand I around? I think they had someone on piano, but I also should stress that this was nine years ago. Right. This was, let me check the date precisely, exactly nine years ago. Wow. January 29th, 2014. Wow. <laughs> exactly nine years ago. <laughs> Um, I was in eighth grade. It was a floor show. It was great. They, we could do a what's, what's pulping on the uh, Oscar nominations. There's a lot of fun to be had there, but I think there's enough to talk about with just this album. So uh, we can start with our history, as we often do. The story begins uh, when, at age twelve, Ryan Ross received a guitar for Christmas. That's where that's where it all started. Uh, he and his friend, uh, this is Spencer. They started covering Blink One Eighty Two songs uh, with uh, with Ryan on vocals in middle school and going into high school. They uh, started a, a two piece band called Pet Salamander. Uh, Ryan wrote the first original song for them when he was fourteen. They were still mostly doing uh, Blink One Eighty Two covers, and they were soon joined by a uh, bassist, Brent Wilson, who went to another high school. To form the band Summer League, and finally, uh, Brent Wilson invited a class a classmate of his, recently lapsed Mormon Brendan Yuri, to come to a rehearsal and try out for guitar. I remember seeing like a text post or something at one point that said like it was an interview with Panic at the Disco where they were like, "How did you become the lead singer? Because you originally weren't the lead singer." To to Brendan Yuri, and his response was like, "We were in rehearsal at one point." And they had me sing lead, and they were like, wait, why have you been on backup? And he's like, I didn't know I could sing. Like, it's like a fucking Disney movie <laughs> or some shit. Yeah, that's basically the story. He was he was playing guitar, and he was doing, like, backup. And 
it was said at some point that he was, you know, they heard him doing backup and they're like, oh, he's really good, actually. He should be the lead. But it has also <laughs> been said at a certain point that he, you know, he tried to lead once and it was like, oh, why why would someone else be doing this? And um, it's, it, it's a sign of just how green this band was overall. And we'll get into that more that um, Brendan didn't really know that he could sing <laughs> when, when they started out. It's such a story. It's such a story. They made him lead singer. Uh, at this point, they're still in high school. They're all 17 and 18. It's 2004. Uh, they get their new band name, Panic at the Disco, from a song by the 90s emo band named Taken, uh, which is sort of a ironic thing there. Um, well? Regarding the exclamation point, uh, here's what Brendan said. We wrote it that way once when we first started the band, and then people kept writing it that way. <laughs> I mean, every time I write it, I never put an exclamation point in there. <laughs> so they sort of they sort of set a trend for you know punctuation marks to you know be part of the yeah you, you have you know the academy is you have uh, fun you know like like punctuation oh God, yeah. sort of blows up partially because <laughs> panic does the exclamation point and it was completely unintentional. <laughs> Like, it was a joke, and then it just stuck. Yeah, I actually think on the Pretty Odd cover, they, they don't even have the exclamation point. They don't have the name on the Pretty Odd cover. They don't have the name on the cover. I feel like it's 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 somewhere on, like, I read this somewhere. It's like, so, it's like on the book or something, hmm. where they have the name without the, yeah, it could be on the back, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, they all, you know, decided to kind of ditch their education, focus on music, Created a lot of rifts with their families. Uh, Brendan would work at Tropical Smoothie Cafe to pay for them to rent their recording space. Incredible. Yeah, and with just a handful of demos to their name, Ryan decided to try and catch the attention of one of his favorite bands, Fall Out Boy. Here's how, here's how Pete Wentz described the story uh, to Nylon in 2006. I ended up in a sort of ongoing live journal skirmish with the guys in Panic, where they would send me nasty messages and mess with me, and I'd mess with them back. One day, they told me to listen to their band, which of course I did because I wanted to tell them how shitty they were, and I was blown away. <laughs> I couldn't believe how awesome they sounded, so I signed them right away. Pete Wentz brought Panic at the Disco into this world, and he took them out of it as well. <laughs> he sure did. Fallout Boy has killed so many bands with their returns, and with the Fallout Boy return, Panic at the Disco breaks up, and then the very next day, Fallout Boy releases a single. That's right. <laughs> we love to see it. We love to see it. <laughs> the story is that, you know, Fall Out Boy was recording their major label debut in LA. Pete drove out to Vegas to like, you know, go to one of their rehearsals after hearing one of their one of their live journal demos. Um and uh yeah, just just pretty much sight unseen signed them to uh Decay Dance's label. And uh you know, they they hadn't written an album at that point. They hadn't performed live ever. They hadn't even officially released a song. <laughs> they just kind of existed as a band. Yeah, they uh, th that was something that I think they were kind of resented for <laughs> when their album came out. Just the fact that they, you know, hadn't performed as a band in front of people. <laughs> they just showed up one day. Yeah. They tried to cyberbully Pete Wentz and then he they got signed. Yeah, and Pete actually ended up doing this for a couple of other bands. Uh, Panic was the first act he signed, but he also did it for Gym Class Heroes and The Academy Is, where they were 
they were both local Chicago acts in that case, and they mm-hmm. reached out to him on MySpace, and they were signed practically sight unseen. So uh, once they did get signed, the band did get serious. They uh, graduated high school. Um, I think Ryan was in college, and he dropped out. They relocated to College Park, Maryland, and started cracking down on their first album. Meanwhile, Pete was hyping them up at every opportunity. He would wear uh, Pete at the disco shirts during concerts. He would mention them in interviews. At the 2005 VMAs, he said, I've got a couple bands coming out soon on Decay Dance, one being this band called Panic at the Disco. Their record is going to be your next favorite record. It's called A Few of You Can't Sweat Out. Get it before your little brother does. Okay. Yeah. Bold words. He was being bold. He was, you know, excited about this band and had invested a lot in them, obviously. On a budget of $11,000, which was, like, pretty decent for a first album, uh, they recorded the album in about a month of just furious 12-hour sessions. Uh, They had only written, like, four songs when they came in, so they they wrote during the sessions. Uh, They were also all living together in a one-bedroom apartment. (laughs) It's, It's hearing things like these. That make me go, damn, no wonder shit fell apart during Pretty Odd. <laughs> yeah. It was a very tense um, experience. I can imagine. Field by Ramen had hoped that they would, they, they, you know, got to choose their producer. And Field by Ramen wanted them to work with Mike Green, who had just produced Paramore's album, All We Know Is Falling. Uh, but they instead chose uh, an indie producer, Matt Squire, who was just like local to College Park. And Field by Ramen had never heard of him. Uh, Squire says, quote, I put them in a studio and told them to set up as a band and went in the control room to make a phone call to their day-to-day manager, Scott. They were trying to set up and they didn't know how to use their guitar tuner, their live tuner. They're all standing around trying to figure it out. I interrupted Scott. Have these guys ever played a show? He's like, no, why? <laughs> oh my God. It's, I think it was a similar thing with... Um, with uh, the Beatles, where they got their recording contract and they didn't know what the word tempo meant. Yeah, that uh, that tracks. That tracks with the Beatles. Yeah, one of these classic things. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, Squire also says that the band was enamored with, quote, Beatles-y shit, and that the only way he could get them to agree to put rock songs on the album at all was to suggest that the album be split in between the two genres with the dance rock on one side and the Beatles-y shit on the other, and have that be a progression, a narrative for the album. Yeah. I believe it. After Brent Wilson split from Panic in 2006, the rest of the band claimed that he didn't actually participate in the writing or recording of the album. (laughs) Uh, Brendan... Brendan played bass on the recording, and he and Ryan, this is what they say, that that they wrote, like, simple bass parts that Brent would be able to perform live. Brent says that he actually did participate in writing, but the consensus does seem to be that Brendan is the one actually playing bass on the album. And Brent still gets, I think, 25% royalty because of his mm-hmm. contract. <laughs> I, I didn't actually think Brendan had guitars. I didn't think he could actually play any instruments. I thought he was just there to sing. Right. Well, he he started out playing guitar. No, now I'm thinking about how I've literally watched pretty odd concert footage where he's playing a guitar. Never mind, I lied. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's basically that's basically what I have for the history. It came out in um, when did it come out? It came out in September of 2005. Uh, debuted at number 112 on the Billboard 200, but would later peak at number 13. So it had a, a, a slow arc, but uh, spent 88 weeks on the chart, uh, sold over 2 million copies. 
uh, yeah, and I really think it is. Like, um, when I Write Sins came out, and that was um, in January of 06, uh, it, it sort of built and built. It became a big crossover radio hit. Um, did it get on the Hot 100? It definitely did. It was number seven on the Hot 100. So yeah. I think I, I think that sort of after the fact led people to check out the album. I definitely remember hearing it on the radio years and years after the fact on my local alt station. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was a song that, like, my mom would play in the car. <laughs> like, it was, a, it was a real serious crossover. They would play that, a handful of Fall Out Boy songs, and Welcome to the Black Parade on Black Parade, local alt yeah. station. Yeah, basically that. And then there were, you know, the couple that would cross over to the Top 40 stations. That was basically just, like, I Read Sins, um, Thanks for the Memories. Like, like, like relatively few of those songs. Yeah. So that takes us into the album. Oh, the album. It starts off with uh, an introduction. It's this radio static thing. Mm-hmm. Sort of sets up the record with this old-timey radio voice. Ooh, you're, turn- you're tuning the radio. Here's what you're going to get. Okay. Uh, a picturesque score of uh, passing fantasy or whatever. Um, yeah, th- there's like... We'll get into this more. I think this is kind of a structurally all-over-the-place album. But <laughs> they definitely... Oh, yeah, they definitely start to have this idea. Like, like this is sort of the thing they're talking about with splitting it in half, where it's like, you know, they, they have the radio thing at the beginning, and then they have the intermission, and that's supposed to be, like, the the thing that distinguishes it. The first track, the first song proper, is The Only Difference Between Martyrdom and Suicide is Press Coverage, uh, which is a line from Chuck Palahniuk's novel Survivor. Brendan basically says that they were, you know, they thought it was cool that Fall Out Boy had all these long song titles, and so they were just sort of continuing with that. It's actually, like, on the first album, you know, they're just pulling quotes from wherever. I I constantly thank God for Esteban is from, like, a guitar commercial, but, um... (laughs) Yeah, but after that record, uh, Brendan was like, all right, let's cool it with the song titles, because he would, like, forget them in concert. I mean, there's a lot of Palinuk references in this entire record. It's true. There's a song where the whole song is a, is a Polonic reference, which we'll get I, into. I like that song a lot, actually. Um, it's pretty good. Regardless. Uh, only Difference. Only Difference. I think um, there's a lot of audacity in this introduction. Oh, it's very, lot. like, it, it's, uh, I, I think it's kind of funny, actually. I was, like, reading people kind of trying to interpret it and being like, it's talking about, you know the young generation and these artists trying to do things. It, it, it's the most, it's so completely devoid of subtext. Like, you know, the chorus is, it's so it's, Ooh, tee hee. We're new on the scene. This is just the prologue. I'm the narrator. He, 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 look at us about to be famous. <laughs> I wanted to make a movie for this song when I was 14. Beside the point. The chorus is, is literally like, we're desperate for attention. Like, like there, there's no, <laughs> there's no second guessing this. They're so obvious about it. It's great. Yeah, I, I think it, I think it sells pretty well. I think this and the um, and the second song, uh, "London Beckend," are both uh, not great from a songwriting perspective. They are very obvious and kind of thematically about the same thing, and you know, just just sort of being in your face, like, "Hey, we're here, we're new. What are we gonna do?" You know, <laughs> we're here, we're here, we're here. Look, 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 look. Yeah, no, I do like the uh, the swear to shake it up whisper at the end of the like the like bridge of this song it's it's like really silly but it's very 2004 i love the inexplicable synth breakdown Mm -hmm. why why just because i like it i like it they got 
Yeah, they got the dance half and the uh, the fucking vaudeville half. <laughs> so they, you know. That's the whole record. You just summed up the whole record. That's it. We That's can stop it. recording now. <laughs> <laughs> Great episode. Uh, London Beckham's Songs About Money Written by Machines is a quote from the book Shampoo Planet by Douglas Copeland, which is similar to these Polonic books, just sort of in the like young millennial nihilism kind of canon. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another Polonic reference on this song on the bridge. Uh, in his novel Diary, the protagonist uses the weather today is to describe her current like internal state. I like this song. The vocals are pretty mm-hmm. solid. I love the super fast verses, like the way that the verses are really fast and they just keep like hitting you with it. Uh, I have this written down as sleeper fave. Not entirely. It's not my favorite on the record. It always gave me, okay, whenever I heard this song, I always thought about Newsies Mm -hmm. with specifically with it's time for us to take for take it to take, ah, fuck. It's time for us to take a chance. I've never seen Newsies. But the entire time, like, the imagery just had me thinking simultaneously that this is a Victorian newsprint where, like, they're trying to unionize, but also it's a MySpace-era TMZ site. Yeah. And I I liked that. I liked that imagery and, like, the vibes. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. I feel like this track, um, again, I was talking about how it's sort of not very distinct from the previous one in terms of subject matter. It's it's interesting. It, like, doesn't even sort of... It's just, like, like us or don't, and it doesn't even really... It's not even say, It's not saying I don't care, but it's not saying I do care either. It's just sort of not making a point about, like, how they feel about people consuming their work. It's just, like, you know, make us hip or, or don't... Or don't. Know, like us or don't, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like us or don't. And I guess they have the... Uh, the uh, indifference or disinterest in what the critics say, which are not really different things. No. <laughs> you know, I, I don't feel like that needs to be an A or B situation. Um, yeah, it kind of doesn't. Feels feels very green to me. I do think we see a little bit of the um, that that aforementioned Beatlesy shit poking through uh, on on the bridge of this one, and uh, that that's the stuff that sort of kept me engaged as I was listening. Um, what I what I had in my notes is they're not particularly skilled musicians or songwriters at this point, but <laughs> but their songs, you know, are are have this undeniable kind of kind of catchiness to them, and there's these uh, you know quirky creative impulses that poke through at this point on the record, and um, it's weird because I, I it's hard for me to imagine that I, I don't think this was a literal progression from like first song written last song written because the next three are the ones that they had as as demos on on Live Journal, but it does kind of feel like with each song they're sort of coming into their own as as a band and sort of embracing the the the, the sort of weirder side of their sound more um the next track is nails for breakfast tax for snacks which we've uh already discussed a little bit um i think this is an an elevation from the previous songs on a on a songwriting level it's obviously sort of talking about addiction um uh, about ryan's dad but not in a very overt way yeah like i said the best writing up to this point on the album but uh <laughs> the production <laughs> left production a lot to be desired i think leaves a lot to be desired i the mixing is bad the auto tune is bad objectively not good the baseline's good i like the baseline a lot sure sure it sucks i love it sure <laughs> it works very well when you pair it with kamizato 
mm. which is tied for my favorite song on the record. Mm. But it's so, it's so, it's so not, not there. Yeah. It's it's wild to have it back-to-back with Kamisato, I feel like, because Kamisato is touching on the same topics, and I feel like just doing it so, so... Infinitely much, better. So much better, yeah. <laughs> but I guess I do like the, um, the sort of progression and how it's like a continuing theme uh, at a point in the album where there don't seem to be continuing themes yet. But yeah, Kamisato, I like how the, the writing at this point in the album starts to get more verbose more but the storytelling is also like more direct more like it, it, it's like you know wordier but more emotional at the same time i think thomas Otto is easily one of my favorites on the record um it's mm. one of the first songs i learned to play on piano so it holds a very mm. special place in my heart um my sister called me out about this when i was like futzing around on on our keyboard where I just started, like, playing it out of muscle memory, and she goes, oh, is this that song you were always playing when you were 14? <laughs> yes. Yes, gotcha it was. There. What about it? Gotcha there. Uh, within Kamisato, I love, like, almost the desperation in it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of uh, can't take the kid from the fight, take the fight from the kid. Like, you can feel, like, the bitterness, almost. Definitely. One of my notes says, if all the lyrics aren't bitten out, then what's the point? Which... Okay, sure. These notes were taken uh, almost a year ago, and then I've got notes from today, but that's beside the point. I I still stand by that. Mm -hmm. I like the Casio keyboard sort of sound at the beginning. I I just really like Kamisato. I love the imagery. I I love the meaning with the title as well. Yeah. Because Kamisato specifically refers to a military tactic where you attack uh, at dawn or at night when... Uh, your enemy is, like, still in their nightshirt. That's what it refers to. Right. And I just, I like the idea that that puts out as well. Where it's like, oh, interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to sort of apply to that idea of of addiction. And how, you know, it, it, it strikes when you think everything's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like the line, uh, regular decorated emergency, too. That's one of those... Uh, almost fallout boy kind of lines where it's like you know a a phrase that you could just sort of sort of think on for a while uh that was one of the other things i was going to mention uh because apparently two songs got lost from my notes apparently uh Mm. whoops and they're my two favorites with kamisato i love the first part of the bridge where it sounds a little muffled Mm mm-hmm like the your regular decorated emergency etc and then it goes into like a actual normal sounding one but the first one sounds like it's being played over like a shitty hospital pa and i like it a lot Mm, yeah i also there's there's like a drum part on the bridge that was like the first moment on the album where i was like oh these like i I thought the drums were kind of wild but it was also you know two songs ago i wrote in my notes um that they're not very talented musicians and that was the first moment where i was like oh wait a minute (laughs) something going here uh, next is Time to Dance, the one that is uh, based on the events of, of the Chuck Palahniuk book, Invisible Monsters. Um, it opens with the, uh, it's basically the, the, the song is sort of looking at the, the in media res beginning of the book where the narrator's uh, trans sister, but maybe not actually trans, is, is bleeding on the dance floor and imploring her to recount her life story. Good song. It's a good song. Good production, good tune. 
uh probably better taken without the context of the novel which is which is kind of thorny but <laughs> it's uh it's a good tune for sure it's a good song i i like this one a lot i like the imagery a lot uh it's very fun in concert this was played both times that i saw panic which was before the death of a bachelor tour so that's how you know the music was still being good because the there's a call and response with the shotgun wedding part <laughs> that i'm i'm just a fan of like the way it's played i'm like oh nice loved also the desperation in the vocals for this one of like yeah like the yelling almost have some composure where is your posture like come on get in the fucking game yeah this is the the song of theirs that most feels like a panic at the disco true someone is panicking in a ballroom setting yeah yeah i also really like the gimme envy gimme malice give me your attention i like that yeah i like the um the, the imagery like you were saying this sort of you know it's something that comes back on the album but this sort of uh old hollywood kind of glamorous thing <laughs> but uh obviously going off the rails very quickly mm-hmm. <laughs> well here's here's old here's old hollywood but here it is getting like fucked up yeah it's interesting how you have the uh estrogen boys on this song and the testosterone boys on the next one i probably not intentional but <laughs> it is interesting and then you flash forward to Pray for the Wicked and you've got Sketchy Girls and Lipstick Boys. Mmm. A lot of talking about boys, all I'm saying. See, I don't know. Time to Dance is, a, yeah, time to dance is, a, is an interesting one. Uh, not the most memorable, I don't think, but uh, a, a fun one for sure. Speak for yourself. Lying is the most fun a girl can have without taking her clothes off is one of the... is a fan favorite, I think. It is. It is. Uh, the title, along with the the next song, better, but it's better if you do, are a line spoken by Natalie Portman in the movie Closer. This one was the fourth single. It was released in summer 2006, uh, almost a year after the album. And uh, it's got the video where the people are wearing the fish tanks on their heads, um, which I think oh, was some yeah. kind of inside joke where they were like, well, you know, they, they wanted them to like appear at something. And they were like, we'll do it if we can wear fish tanks on our heads. And then that turned into the... <laughs> the and then they repeated that in the nine in the afternoon video right um lying is the most fun my first note on this says introduced me to the concept of slut music mm, i can see that good song pretty pretty decent parts of it kind of suck but that's can be said for the whole record it is kind of funny when you consider this in the concept of it being written by a catholic and an ex-mormon mm-hmm. gentlemen <laughs> It definitely uh, seems like there was a, a lot of, you know, a lot of those feelings were <laughs> were part yeah. of the uh, the idea here. My other notes on this say, I got told off by another concert goer for breaking it down too hard to this song when I was 15. I mean, there's also, once again, some crazy drums on this one and some good guitar, mm-hmm. too. This is, a, this is, there's a few, a few things that I, that I liked about the instrumentation on this one. And I kind of like how after, you know... All this high energy stuff. I like that this one starts not 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 low energy, but like a little a little softer, a little more like a little talking softer, to you, a little more seductive, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you you can't remove the context that you know they were coming on the scene. These you know young, uh, kind kind of twinky, uh, makeup wearing guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got me there. That was part of the appeal. It was part of the appeal, or it was gonna be. I don't. I don't. I, whether or not it was in the end is is a maybe. But I mean, if you look at the fan base they developed. I definitely think there was a little bit of that. There was. There was a little bit. Listen, if 
Listen, if being at I don't know how, but they found me shows in 2019 taught me anything, it's that people still haven't let go of the image of Twink Ryan Ross from 2004. Yeah. But yeah, I feel like relative to the other songs, this one just has more highs and lows, where the other ones are like all high. Yeah. Um, it feel, I, I felt at this point in the album that the band's like sound and style was improving with each track. It, it this one, you know, I like that. I like that we're we're getting more of this kind of wordy of <laughs> uh, lyricism and also like vocal performance, but also. You know, it's it's combining the like self aware like vaudeville presentation thing that they're doing with like a breakup story, in a, in a way that I think like adds nuance to the entire album. So I, I like this song a lot, um, especially mm. paired with. Uh, but it's better if you do, and the uh, you know we re- we obviously return to that radio tuner effect at the end, going into the intermission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, goes into the intermission, which is you know. Kind of funky, kind of like, ooh, cool, fun. Yeah. There's this really good, uh, the the dance beat that plays at the beginning, I think is like good. And I don't know who did it, but it was like, oh, who's this? And then they uh, do a, a piano interlude for, for a while. The end, the end gets a little overwhelming if you're listening to it uh, with headphones in. Mm. Uh, because it like starts going into static and then just keeps building and building and building and then goes into, but it's better if you do. Mm-hmm. which when I was doing my original like review of this uh, like last year I was like oh this is a little too much it's a lot but I mean you know this whole record is too much you know <laughs> they are doing way too much of this record they're doing the most they're uh they're young they're hungry they're you know uh they're coming on the scene out. you can like them or don't they're they're coming at you having fun yeah, and especially the back half of this record is just, like, more and more conceptual, more and more weird elements getting thrown in. Like, it, it, it's really just, um, I think, a record that builds and builds, even though it reached a point where I think my favorite parts of this record are, like, towards the beginning of the second half. But mm. the, you know, because after that point, it's just, like, you know, so much, the, the storytelling just becomes so dense and it's like, you're, you know, we're, we're, we're losing it a little bit. <laughs> Mm-hmm. but it really does just build and build uh in, in this one the radio announcer clip is actually mostly an interpolation of orson wells's reading of war of the worlds oh. which kind of ties together i think the apocalyptic sort of emotion in like these you know these breakup songs these songs about ryan's dad and and it sort of ties that with the like pr- with the like presentation idea apocalyptic is definitely a good word for it that takes us into but it's better if you do okay okay now we're getting into it. <laughs> now we're getting into it. I like this one. I like it too. I always like the piano. I don't think I knew what a lap dance was when I first heard this song. <laughs> because I would have been like 13. Mm-hmm. Love the inexplicable waltz melody in the middle. Yeah. Uh, this is another one that I think I wanted to make a uh, a music video for when I was in my big music video arc. Uh, when I was like 16, 17. Because I was listening to it and I had, like, this image in my head. I was, like, flashing back to this image in my head of, like, champagne glasses exploding to the beat. And I was like, oh, shit, that was a thing I wanted to do, wasn't it? (laughs) Right. I like it. I like the imagery. I like how not just from the title, but from the storytelling, it's, like, directly carrying on from the previous song. It's sort of one of the reasons that I'm not sure about the intermission. Because, first of all, I think that the progression from 
the dance stuff and the Beatlesy stuff is like more gradual and not as like cut down the middle as they as they say it is. Yeah. Um, but also, again, these songs just flow together in such an interesting way. How it's like they break up and then he's like, "Oh yeah, well I'm going to go to a strip club," and then he's there and he's like, "Well, I don't like this." <laughs> well, well, this is, huh? I don't know if I like this. I I wouldn't be yeah. caught dead in this place. Exactly. Um. So yeah, as much as I as much as I think the radio thing is fun, I probably would have. Uh, felt the, the intermission wasn't necessary. <laughs> yeah, it's funky, but it's not necessary. Yeah, it uh, this song does incorporate some of that, some of that uh, again, Beatlesy shit, as as Squire elegantly put it. Um, I think this is vocally the best performance from Brendan up to this point in the album. Maybe overall, I you know, hmm. I think he does good stuff on here. Take it. Uh, there's also a video for this one. It was a third single, and the video I think is. Uh, a reflection of the song more so than any of the rest of these are it really is just like they're at a burlesque club they're performing there's sort of a masquerade thing going on and then towards the end the cops come and and you know arrest everyone Ooh, you want to be you want to be the mr brightside video so bad <laughs> it's funny how there was this um this beef between the killers and panic uh only one point. vegas band can stay standing yeah and oh honey have the killers won <laughs> they sure did they sure did i i feel like i read some stuff with with brendan where he was like you know we didn't really want <laughs> we didn't want to have beef with anyone it was just sort of something that like the label put together but you know they had they had to be pit against each other they were both from vegas they both had their debuts happening in 0405 one was named brandon and the other was named brendan that's true there's really nothing to be done there. It's interesting looking at the two records because I feel like, you know, the the high points of Hot Fuss are obviously higher than the the, the high points of this album. But Hot Fuss is kind of famously one of the most front-loaded albums of all time. <laughs> and this one, I think, has a better sort of progression. <laughs> I need to look at the, now I need to look at what what's on Hot Fuss. Yeah, give that a look. Because Hot Fuss is one of my favorite albums. Like It's great. Okay, yeah. With okay, they started with Jenny. Nothing can beat starting with Jenny. They started with Jenny, Mister Brightside, smile like you mean it. Somebody told me all these things that I've done. <laughs> like, like, okay, got you got me out. there. Yeah. Uh, Midnight Show is a sleeper on that one. Fucking Midnight Show goes mm. hard. Uh, mm. Regardless, it's it, it's a better album. <laughs> it's a better no album. Mistake. But yeah, better if you do is a good track, and I like how it segues into uh, the hit. I read since not tragedies. The hit. The hit. For the longest time, they were kind of, sort of, technically a one-hit wonder with this song. God, yeah. Until. <laughs> Until this, the plague. Pray, pray for the wicked. <laughs> you finally cracked the code. Um, I read sins is uh, sort of undeniable. It's, I I think it's interesting that like a lot, a lot of the iconic sort of the things people associate with Panic, a lot of it does come from just this song and how big it was the, you know, the steampunk video and the like super like verbose uh, chorus and, and all that stuff. Inexplicable circus people. Circus people. So true. Top um, hat. Top hat. Eyeliner. Red jacket. Cello cello it's um 
more self-contained than I feel like uh, a lot of these other songs on the album are. It's like you know, mm-hmm. it it's it's obviously sort of, sort of playing on this 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 breakup, sort of the, the emotions of that, but it's telling this more third-person story of of you know a a, a groom at a wedding and the and you know here overhearing that but like it's it's you know spinning it out into a, a bit of a yarn the title here that is another line from shampoo planet uh from douglas copeland the line in the book is what i write are not sins i write tragedies okay but yeah this song um you know has like an inherent sense of humor to it it's not like a comedy song but it just sort of has like you know that 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 sort of energy the scenario so heightened um undeniable earworm quality again cool vocals the the again the guitar and drums near the end are are like kind of cool um and the cello and the accordion and all that like like this is a this is a this is a good track it's a good track it's it got very overplayed of course by you know by now by the end uh, there was a point in concert where you could tell that Brendan was getting a little sick of it. Yeah. Uh, this was always the closer for their sets. It was the closer for both of the sets I saw. Um, I originally found this song through a Tumblr post. Hmm. Uh, which was a screenshot of a Google search that said, Song about closing the goddamn door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which I then promptly Googled. And the rest is history. Again, as I said before, I think uh, my mom probably introduced me to this song. It's a very nostalgic song. I, okay, I like the live version a little better. Mm. There was a recorded live version that I had on my iPod at one point Mm -hmm. in my life that I liked a little better in part because after the, I think, second verse there's there's a bit uh oh god i i'm like hearing it in my head it's right before the chorus he adds in like an oh dear Mm. that goes along with the instrumentation and i just like that a lot better and kind of miss it on the like recorded version interesting Uh, i mean you're talking you're talking about them doing this so much in concert they did it so much in concert fallout boy did it in concert (laughs) i mean i mean yeah yeah Mm, let me see if i still have it i might still have it i think there was a point where like every time brendan played the song he would be like i'm fucking sick of this (laughs) yeah yeah i remember that and Uh, then he had to do an interview where he was like i'm not actually sick of it i just uh... (laughs) i just i just searched sins not tragedies on my uh computer i found a a folder called emily's music Mm. And there are two things that say, I write sins, not tragedies, panic at the disco, and I write sins, not tragedies, and then in parentheses, better version. Nice. So I'll I'll send that your way and you can check it out later, but... I'll see for myself. Yeah. The next song is, I constantly thank God for Esteban. All the time, thanking him so much. I, it's, yeah, it, it, it comes up more often than you'd think. Uh, the title comes from a commercial for Esteban Guitars. Uh, the band saw that commercial, and there's like a woman in the commercial who's like, "I constantly thank God for Esteban," and they were like, "That's a fun line. We should make that a title." And then they were happening to write this song that had this sort of Spanish guitar thing going on, and they were like, "We should call this 'I Constantly Thank God for Esteban.'" My first note actually says, "Why is it called that?" So thank you yeah. for answering. <laughs> there you go. Um, I think this is my favorite song on the album. <laughs> huh. I, I feel like I wasn't, you know, super, like, listening to this, like, I gotta pick out my favorites, but I feel like this one, I was like, I was like, the energy, 
you know higher than it's been up to this point it feels like you know we get we get again that that like verbose kind of stuff and then this uh the the you know the big uh the big chorus um feels dynamic i like how you know there are the parts where it's like just a little a little tap a little guitar and and you know he's sort of because i feel like a lot of the stuff on this album is sort of like beginner beginner band stuff where it's like you know you sing on the beat and you know you stop when the beat stops and 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 this there's a little more playfulness with like you know the beat will will almost fully cut out and then brendan's sort of like like getting over the the be getting ahead of it getting behind it i think uh yeah it's just Hmm. it's just more more playful i feel like musically than anything up to this point on the album i i i see what you mean i have it as one of the weaker tracks for me i like it a lot but like the title's batshit that makes up for part of the elements that i find weaker i Mm. like it as a criticism of catholicism i like it as a criticism of like the hypocrisy in religion but part of me's like okay I like the bass line. I have a lot of notes about the bass line, which, I mean, yeah, I play bass. Mm. Why is there a gunslinger? <laughs> There's a gunslinger, yeah. You've got the, the uh... you've got the gunslinger extraordinaire, walking contradiction. Why is he there? Uh, well, he could just be someone who's, you know, full of himself. I don't know. Yeah, I like it, but it's not in my, like, top three. A more specific, just just to get the quote from Brandon here about the title. A lot of the bands in the scene were doing cool stuff with song titles, so we took it a step further. Nobody had song titles that were as long as ours. <laughs> a lot of it was just inside jokes. The song I constantly thank God for Esteban was from an infomercial for these guitars. It's just a shitty infomercial. A lady on there has one of the guitars, and she's like, I constantly thank God for Esteban. So we wrote a song with Latin flavor, like, fuck yeah, we're using that. I mean... Yeah. You know, fair. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, speaking to long titles, <laughs> the, the next song is called. Titles. The next song is called. There's a good reason these tables are numbered, honey. You just haven't thought of it yet. Um, the the song with the title is so long that I feel like fans of the band don't even really talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it it this one the title doesn't seem to come from anything. It just seems like you know. There, obviously, it's a song about like this banquet that that you know, sort of messing around with, and, and, and they were like, "Let's come up with the longest title we can <laughs> for, for the song." I I like this one. It's a I, it's a little mediocre, but also it's a really good scheming song. This was my villain song when I was thirteen. Love a song about trying to elaborately love song. Blah, 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 blah. Love a song about elaborately trying to kill someone at a fancy dinner. I like this song a lot. It's up there for me, too. It is up there for me. Um, love the little piano riff. Makes me feel like I'm wearing a, a top hat and, you know, walking around with a silly little cane. Mm-hmm. Wearing a, a fancy little waistcoat. Makes me want to scheme. Makes me want to have a nemesis. Great sort of fun, like, revenge fantasy song. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is where we're really getting into, like, the the vaudeville stuff and, like, the lyrics oh, kind yeah. of spilling over each other. Like, the you know, it, it's less like dance forward than than the whole first half of this album but like still a very a very groovy song in its own way Mm -hmm. love the idea the imagery specifically in the cigarettes happen to be laced with nitroglycerin Mm -hmm. like it's so specific and then i had to look up what nitroglycerin was and i was like oh so if they lit that cigarette it would fucking explode (laughs) yeah which i like I'm like, ooh, you're thinking ahead. You're not just trying to poison someone. Yeah, it's um, 
a really fun sort of like yeah devilish kind of <laughs> kind of song it has a great energy to it uh i like how it gets like quiet uh like in the middle and then gets loud again i like that mm-hmm. where you're like ooh, okay fun what i mean one of my favorite bits on the whole album is like at the very end of this song when the last time they say the punch there's like a musical punch that goes along with it <laughs> there's a musical punch that goes along with it i have a distinct memory of scaring the shit out of my friend at one point uh, by loudly doing that part while we were in the car again when we were like fourteen, mm-hmm. uh, and just like shouting it and her jumping out of her seat. <laughs> I ran into her at emo night last month, so ah. you know, glad to know we're still both the same people we were ten years ago. Still about it, yeah, yeah. Love that song. That's a that's a really fun one. Sort of an outlier really on the album. One. Oh yeah, but a really good one nonetheless. The last song is called Build God Then We'll Talk, and the fun thing about this song is that it's been said that the title is derived from Chuck Palahniuk's novel Choke. Uh, That phrase does not actually appear in the book. (laughs) Oh, oh, Choke? Oh, Choke? Like, I don't know how, but they found me? The hit song Choke? Like the hit song Choke, yes. Whoa! The song that's about Panic at the Disco! Um, this is the song about, uh, you know, caricatures. <laughs> Why does he say it like that? <laughs> it's like, he, it like that? You, you think he's just doing it for the, for the cadence of that one part, but then he has another part where he says caricature and he says it like that again. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. Why does he say it like that? This is the, this is the song where it really feels like the, um you know lyrics spilling over each other sort of uh, storytelling stuff it goes a little it's a little it's a little much <laughs> it's a little much i like the string breakdown before the final chorus it's a it's i love a good string breakdown uh, but it's just like but it's just like now we have a lawyer and we're on fourth and fremont street and there's the you know it, it's just any practice a lot catholic would cross themselves there's a lot of story going on Mm-hmm. yeah it's a wonderful caricature i gotta say wonderful caricature of intimacy so true yeah. ryan so true <laughs> and there's the the bridge that's playing off of uh my favorite things mm-hmm. and a few fun. more of your least favorite things mm. how wry he's he's so real for this he's what, real what for that one <laughs> what does it all yeah. mean there's also a cello solo on this song which i thought was that's, cool that's the bit i like that's the the cello solo is what I like a lot. Yeah, yeah. I will say that the ending of the track is a little weaker than I'd like. A bit anticlimactic, you know? All these songs kind of flow into each other, and this one just sort of ends. This one just sort of ends, and you're like, that's it? Yeah. Okay. They could have at least like brought back the radio things a little bit at the end, just to tie yeah, it together. I feel, like, I feel like they didn't wrap up the radio thing. We've got a couple other miscellaneous notes and, like, final review. Sure, well, we could talk overall about it. Yeah. I feel like the ending leaves a little something to be desired. Mm-hmm. Uh, lyrics are batshit insane. Clearly an English major wrote this. Mm-hmm. I like it well enough. Favorites are Time to Dance and Kamazato with uh, tables as, like, a number three. Mm-hmm. It's not bad, but it's not good, either. Sure. Also, why does one of the girls on the cover look like Gerard Way circa 2010? Hmm. Ain't that interesting. 
when you start to look at this album overall, again, I think there's a very clear progression from the dancier, more like standard pop punk stuff into these weirder Beatlesy kind of kind of sounds, and we see you know the the verses get faster, they get wordier, they get more high concept um as the album goes on which i think is cool and and sort of makes the album like feel like a ride like it comes out the gate and the first thing you think is oh these guys are kind of kind of kind of green around the gills but they're they're you know they they have this sort of pop uh earworm thing to them and a cool voice and cool instruments and then as the album goes on you're like oh these guys are insane (laughs) um but you also think about how thematically it's like it starts with two songs in a row about like hi we're here what do you think leave a note in the comments and then we we get on a little run about ryan's dad and then most of the rest of the album's about a breakup but then like the concept just sort of gets more and more frayed as it continues down that line it's just conceptually all over the place i think i'm I'm still just reeling from leave a comment (laughs) rate and review rate and review on my myspace on your on your live journal on my live journal at pete at pete at least panic didn't write a song called pete wentz is the only reason we're famous (laughs) it's true it's true they could have they would have been right to but they They would have been right to cobra had the right idea so yeah i do again think that overall things get kind of out of hand as you reach the very end. I do think Esteban mm. is my favorite track. I think the run mm. from Better If You Do until uh, Tables is good shit all around. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, we'll we'll probably, I imagine there'll be more panic talk to be had in the future, but... Oh, sure. If we're looking at this as the beginning, uh, you know, an element of kind of a retrospective of the band, I think you could definitely see why they hit why they crossed over in a way that even a lot of these emo bands couldn't um they were bringing you know a like less you know le- le- less metally less less punky like like they were bringing a more accessible more accessible sounds in but also still these weird sort of expansive ideas and um they they were definitely bringing some some ideas that musically and lyrically that no one else was really doing uh at the time i find it interesting that you that you say they were trying to go for a beatlesy thing on this record when you can clearly see it on all of pretty odd right yeah it seems like they their thought was the progression from here like like they were talking about in the in the production of this album how they didn't want to have like rock songs on the album at all and it's clear that after this album hit they were like now we can make the album we wanted to make that doesn't have any rock songs on it at all (laughs) no rock songs just folk music Mm -hmm. we're gonna go into a cabin and get high and fight each other for like a month we're gonna go into the country we're gonna eat a lot of peaches um sorry i just had a flashback to 2009 fandom memes sorry go mm -hmm. on Uh, you know as the band goes on there's a lot of a lot of talk about how they fall off from a songwriting perspective kind of trying to do what they were doing initially the songwriting on this album is it's not like uniformly great, you know. <laughs> yeah. There, there are there are songs, especially early on, that are you know not all the way there from a songwriting perspective. Again, they you know had a few demos 
that they wrote as teens that were like, they're interesting ideas here, but they're not fully formed. And then they wrote everything else in the studio during their limited production schedule. <laughs> so, yeah. I feel, like, I feel like part of that, uh, you know, part of that, like, ooh, Panic was better in the first two records. It's because it was Ryan Ross doing a lot of the, doing all in the case of Fever, but, and most of the songwriting Mm-hmm. And then ignore that Vices is, like, a very good album. I also think it's a little weird how, like, the fandom sphere for Panic hasn't let go in more recent times of that bit. Mm-hmm. The thing I was saying about uh, the IDK Howe show, I I was at an IDK Howe show in 2018 or 2019, and there were these kids in the in the crowd who were clearly Panic fans, who, when the opener was like leaving one of the kids yelled is that ryan ross and i'm like dude ryan and dallin weren't even in the band at the same time (laughs) right they weren't in the band at the same time they weren't friends both of them left panic with like not good memories Mm -hmm. why are you doing this you weren't even alive when that record came out because these were like kids yeah, did you see the thing recently where uh, Dallin had the uh, the Instagram caption <laughs> that was, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> with the airsoft gun? Oh, I saw. I, listen, now that Panic at the Disco is done, I want Dallin's version of the two weird, two rare tracks that he wrote. Mm-hmm. I want Dallin's version of Girls, Girls, Boys. I want Dallin's version of... Uh, Far Too Young to Die. The Brobex demo of Far Too Young to Die is one of my favorite demos. There was another one. Uh, Colorful. I think there were, like... Oh, Colorful and Vegas Lights both had, like, more fucked up lyrics. I want those. I want Dallin's version mm-hmm. of those. Like, we had Taylor's version. I want Dallin's version. Dallin's version of, of the Panic Era. Yeah. yeah. I think if you look at this album and you ask yourself what works about it, because I do think it works overall as an album. Mm-hmm. I think I've I've sort of come around to the side of it's it's an overall like it's easy to see why this is an important album why it's an impactful album for the for oh, the yeah. genre and why it and why it hit um but i don't think it's one specific thing like oh it works because of the songwriting it works because of the vocals or because of this or that there's like hints of cool stuff in all those areas like some of the most of the production is really good except for uh nails for breakfast nails. Uh, <laughs> brent brendan is definitely magnetic as a performer there's mm-hmm. like some re- really good drum parts as i was saying um but again i think mostly it's just like these guys have very different ideas and ideas that you're not really hearing in pop punk before this point mm, yeah it's. I feel like it's indicative of the time. It's indicative of who the band was at that time, which is to say pretentious 18-year-olds who just got out of religion mm-hmm. and have been clearly reading a lot of pretentious books. Mm-hmm. But I respect, I respect that. I, it's very nostalgic for me. It's very... I'm 12 years old, I'm sitting on my computer, and I'm listening to Pandora Radio while I play Minecraft. It's a good record, but it's so 2005. It's, um, you know, I mean, a lot of what we talk about with this scene, I mean, these guys were teenagers when they made this album. Haley Williams was 15, recording that Paramore album. Like, the, you know, the, we, we're, we're really seeing, I think, the raw, <laughs> the, 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 the raw output of, like, 
teenagers who are kind of pissed off at each other. <laughs> They're just kind of trying to... And then in to... 2006, Gerard Way releases Teenagers <laughs> right. by Michael Gorovitz. Yeah, I just feel like this, you know, it's it's embarrassing in many ways, as any art that any of us made as teenagers is. Mm. Um, but yeah. I think the the reason it kind of resonates like that is because they were teenagers. They were making music for teenagers. Yeah, I I was a teenager when I first heard this, and by God, did I did I hear it? So, is there anything else? That must be said about this record before we sign off. Is there anything else that must be said? Um, it's got some crowd pleasers. It's it's got a it's got a whole bunch of a whole bunch of crowd pleasers. I'm genuinely surprised that this twenty this twenty fourteen set list fully has Kamizano on it. I've looked at this set list a couple times and it surprises me every time. Yeah, I think that's the thing is that they almost have this uh this this like maroon 5 issue where like oh god yeah many of their most iconic or most beloved by fans songs are from this album and even though people like some of the other albums and a lot of the stuff on the other albums like if if you ask people to name their like top five panic songs chances are most of them will be from this album i can see that i feel like if you ask if you asked me a lot of them would probably be from too weird too rare just because of it that was the one that was touring when i got into them Mm mm-hmm which, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit. It's a good record. One more thing. The aesthetic that is put forward in this album, they do not escape until Too Weird. Mm-hmm. They true. do not escape the steampunk aesthetic until Too Weird. When they go full tilt into, like, city vibes. City desert sort of thing. Yeah, it because... sort of takes it sort of takes the band kind of disbanding for, for, for them to be able to do something yeah. else. Because you've got the steampunk look in in fucking uh, Sin's video. You've got it in Mona Lisa and the mm-hmm. whole look of Vices. But they can't escape it in other people's music videos. Because Brendan is one of the dandy vampires in the 16 Candles video. Right. Along with, along with William Beckett, along with whoever else is there. Like, they can't escape wearing a top hat in Fall Out Boy's videos, too. Which is really yeah, in funny. Ma- in many ways, I just think this album and this era became the shadow of, like, what Panic should be. And mm-hmm. you you sort of see how they try to progress on Pretty Odd and do more of, like, a like a Sgt. Pepper's kind of flower, flower power sort of thing. Um, with, you know, moving away from that steampunk sound. But then by the time you... Steampunk look. But then by the time you get to Vices and Virtues, they're like... A, we need to reset, we need to do something more like the old stuff, and they're sort of toning it down back to <laughs> the kind yeah. of steampunk stuff. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, this this was a very influential album that uh, overall, it's, it's easy to see how it's a, a classic of the genre, and uh, also a very juvenile and messy album, <laughs> as, as one might expect. That um, I think I appreciate more now than than the last time we talked about it, but mm-hmm. is not without its problems. I love it. It sucks. Yeah, Emily, thank yeah. you so much for joining me. Thank you this, for having uh... me. I know we've been looking forward to this for a while, and the panic breakup very much helped. <laughs> yeah, a nice and breezy episode, uh, and I would love to 
take a look through the catalog. <laughs> just, oh, just the whole catalog. See what we can uncover there. I mean, obviously, there's a new Fallout Boy album coming out pretty soon. That could very well be a I'm topic. I'm so excited. Yeah, it, it seems it seems pretty good. I I didn't like the new single as much as the first one, but I did like it. I liked it a lot. I liked it a little more than the mm-hmm. than the first one. I need to eat both of them, but that's beside the point. Sure, crunchy. Uh, definitely crunchy. Um, I mean, I felt the same way about foundations. I needed to eat foundations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know how it is. Yeah, we all know. We've all been there. We've all been there. To those of you who've been listening, thank you so much. Uh, if you like the show, you can follow and rate or like or whatever, depending on where you're listening to it. Uh, one of the best things you can do is share it with people, let people know you like the show. And um, yeah, next up, we have a very exciting episode. I'm trying to get a guest who I think is going to be really cool. Um, but yeah, big things coming. I disagree, Gary. I disagree, Gary.